Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSats Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are AppSats certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. Sometimes listeners want to know about triggers. I'm dealing with the aftermath of my husband's affairs, and he still works the same job that he did when he was acting out. It's a job that allows him to hide his goings-on and one that he stated was the previous trigger for his acting out. The whole 16 and a half years we've been together, he's acted out. In the beginning, what I thought it was was just pornography. Um, It ended up being, I found out two and a half years ago, he had been with multiple prostitutes. I only found out a very small portion of that until about a month ago. How do you cope with all of that when you still have to deal with unavoidable triggers? Well, of course you would feel traumatized by hearing all that information and I gotta tell you Stephanie that's a staggered disclosure that's finding out little bits and pieces about your husband's behavior throughout a time period making you feel insecure unsure and unsafe so what we gotta do is set up a situation whereby you get with a specialist to do a formal disclosure so you can hear everything at one time in a safe environment And I am here with you on Betrayal Recovery Radio. We're here for the partners. This show is specifically sponsored by appsats.org. That's A-P-S-A-T-S dot org. The only uh, certification program that teaches clinicians and coaches how to uh, be available, accessible, and therapeutic to partners when they're going through this kind of trauma and this kind of crisis. And, you know, it's such an opportunity for me to get to share some of the issues that are occurring um, in the world today that directly affect partners. I mean, many of you know that when you discovered the sex addict's betrayal, it might have been prostitution, it might have been voyeurism, it might have been multiple affairs, it might have been pornography, regardless, you were absolutely traumatized. And, and if you weren't, I guarantee you that it did on some level leave you wondering what was going on with your husband, and why you didn't see it. Now, I got this email this week from a woman who felt like her support group had traumatized her. And one of the things we deal with in APSATS is we help people to deal with the potential abuses that occur um, involuntarily. You know, sometimes the counselor 
won't know what to say. And so somehow she says, well, what did you do that contributed to the problems that he had? Or, you know, a pastor or a priest may say to you, well, how much sex were you having? You know, if you had had more sex, this thing probably would never have gotten started with the sexual addiction. So in other words, well-meaning people stand about the disorder of sexual addiction, the illness, the compulsivity, the fact that it really had absolutely nothing to do with you. I mean, I'm not saying there might not have been marital problems. I don't know any marriage, healthy or not, that doesn't have some marital issues. Marriage is hard, and, you know, it's two people working things out and compromising and negotiating and having different feelings about things. It is normal. It is absolutely normal to have conflict. And there might have been problems before the sex addict started acting out. But my experience is more often than not, Sex addicts had this problem before they even met you. The the behaviors had already started to be compulsive and that they did a really good job of keeping that information from you. So you really didn't even know what you were getting into. You know, I just talked to a woman the other day who said to me, we've been married 58 years and he had pornography that he was bringing and this happened to be those old projectors with those that old film, he was bringing it on the honeymoon. And I said, oh, no, you don't. That is going in the trunk of our other car. And when we get back, you are delivering that to the, to the buddy that gave it to you. She also said, you know, Carol, I knew that he had some issues with that, but he told me that he was going to give it up. Once he was married, he wouldn't need that stuff. And so, literally, she had the hope that things would work itself out. Yeah, don't we all have hope when there's a problem that if somebody says, I'm going to work on it, that it will work out? Okay, so back to my story. So this woman sent me an email and said, I went to an um, an ethanol support group. And... um, she says, i got to tell you something, Carol. I've been to SAA, I've been to Ethanon, I've been to COSA, and I've been to open SAA meetings. And it sure seems like we are not allowed to have any information about the sex addict's recovery. And I don't like it. And I don't think it's fair. I think it's an injustice. At least two out of these three programs say they're here for us. And yet they want us only to do our own work. And they call us a co-addict. And they tell us that we're part of the problem. Well, what I know to be true is that many, many of these programs are changing their focus. They're not telling the partners, hey, you're part of the problem. They're not saying to the partners, hey, stay on your side of the street. Don't worry about him. You can't tell him what to do. I mean, sure, we all know that it's not advisable for a partner to tell an addict what he should do in his recovery. However, at appsats.org, 
believe that you can determine what's going to make you feel safe and stable and ask your partner who loves you, who says he wants to make you feel better, you can ask him what you need for your own safety. And sometimes those things overlap. Sometimes um, if your husband has backed off of going to meetings or he's not doing his reading or he's not attending church with you, you can say, hey, that makes me feel very scared and, and unsafe and I need you to step up your program so that I know you're really working on this addiction. And that may sound to the addict like she's telling him what to do, but what she's really saying is this is what I need to feel safe. I need to see that you're actively participating in a recovery program. I need to see that so I know what to do with my life. Do we need a therapeutic separation? Do we need separate bedrooms? Do we need to live in separate places? You know, because what I do believe is that you have every right as a partner to feel safe and that this situation made you feel unsafe. And Barbara Steffen's greatest quote is how to feel safe in an unsafe situation. And so having boundaries and looking for and asking for your husband to do certain things for you to make you feel safe is absolutely within bounds. As a matter of fact, I'm so excited to be talking with uh, Dorit Reichenthal, and she is an APSAT uh, fellow. She is somebody who took the class, got certified, was on the board, and has, has developed several different tools for the addict and the partner. And one of them is about trigger busters. She actually calls this thing trigger busters. And she says, hey, Carol, I want you to know that I'd like to talk about how couples can work together to manage triggers. Courageous couples who have spent years or decades in the barren desert of sex addiction come into recovery in the hopes of healing from the pain of betrayal trauma. They're often left with shattered trust. And although this can feel insurmountable, and the mountain can feel insurmountable to climb, the person with the addiction who ruptured the relationship can actually help the betrayed partner heal. Doris has created a method by which... um, the sex addict can help the partner to heal by helping her to co-regulate. And when he can help her to develop safety, it increases empathy and intimacy. And you know, those are my three favorite words that I use every week on the show. I'm using empathy because I'm writing a book right now to sex addicts on how to develop empathy with your wife. And we know that empathy 
develops intimacy and trust. And unfortunately, there are basically many types of triggers, but the two main categories are the triggers that you can link to a specific situation that has made you feel unsafe in the past, or it's an unconscious or subconscious link, and you'll just be driving down the street, and all of a sudden you'll get overwhelmed by a panicky feeling that is very difficult to manage, and you'll go, what in the heck is going on with me? Why am I having this trigger? And those are the ones that don't appear to have a link. I believe they do have a link, but I also believe that you don't always know what the link is. You know, I I give the common example in my book of a woman who every time she went to this restaurant with yellow walls, she couldn't stay. She had panic attacks. Her heart was racing. She wanted to cry. She had racing thoughts. She was flooded with feelings over two years to figure out that the discovery of his sexual addiction occurred in their yellow kitchen when she saw the prostitute's message, actually her text, to her husband. And one day when she figured out that's why she couldn't go into this restaurant because it was yellow, the exact same color of her kitchen, she was able to work through that trigger. Now, I remember her looking at me like a deer in the headlights, and she said to me, okay, I get why I was triggered when I went to this French restaurant. She said, but why don't I get triggered when I go into my own kitchen? (laughs) And I said, you know, the brain works in unusual ways. And, you know, it's the same reason why The sound of a text going off may trigger you one out of every 10 times. It doesn't trigger you every time, but it does trigger you some of the time. Or an anniversary date will trigger you year one, two, and three. And then years four and five, you kind of get through those dates. That may be to your anniversary. That may be to discovery. That may be to disclosure. And then years six and seven, you have really tough times around those dates again. So what you've got to do is be gentle with yourself. And and Dorit and I are going to be talking about how the addict can help you to manage the triggers. So make sure to download this show so that the two of you can listen to it together. Because this is vital information, and Dort has spent a lot of time on it, and I just love it. I teach it to clinicians and coaches. I'm writing about it in my book on empathy, and I am so happy to have her on the show. So, Dort, welcome to Betrayal Recovery Radio. Thank you so much. It is so good to be here. <clears throat> so. I, yeah, I you know, Dora, expect- you have made expect- it your mission. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was going to say I was expecting Carol, and I am so thrilled to be talking to you. Um, 
you have brought you know you have brought so much to this field and without you I don't know where any of us would be so it is uh-huh. so delightful for me to be able to be here with you today Barb well you know what I really feel like we have all contributed to this field in so many amazing ways. And, boy, the more sophisticated we get with our media and our blogs and all sorts of things, then the more likely we are to get all these gifts from the partners that we work with that are contributing by writing blogs and sharing support in their support groups. It's just amazing. So now, Doris, you know you're talking to Carol the Coach, and I really want wanted you to share this trick-for-buster method because it's a way for couples to, to work together on healing the relationship. So tell me a little bit about how you got started with this trick-for-busters method. So... You know, I recognized very early on that one of the biggest challenges that couples face are triggers, Uh and that triggers can last for days, weeks, and sometimes months, and they're excruciating because the person that we turn to for comfort and soothing has become the source of danger for us. And I also realized um, in doing a lot of work with partners and groups that partners have a significantly higher rate of illness. And it's due to the trauma because of, you know, prolonged trauma causes inflammation, and inflammation causes um, diseases. And it became almost a mission for me to figure out how can we begin to lessen the trauma, help couples heal, what tools can we give them? that would also promote empathy and ultimately intimacy. And so it was from that mindset, like literally, we've got to do something to get these couples out of pain because triggers are just so painful and, long, and can create long-term damage. And that's when I started to think about, okay, what what could possibly work? And if you think about traumas and triggers as being disconnecting, that feeling um, a source of danger and having to respond in terms of fight, flight, freeze, or a shame spiral, then the antidote to that would be connection. But we know that the connection has to be 
very carefully planned ahead of time because with triggers, if a person is having a flight response, then connection might feel even more endangering. And so with trigger busters, it's a technique that a therapist or a coach works with the couple ahead of time, and then they work maybe on a past trigger to see what would work for this couple or what are some of the possibilities in the middle of a trigger would help to restore safety, bring the brain back online, and connect the brain and the body. So did I say a little bit too much there? No, I don't think so at all. So, But you have always been a proponent of the coupleship, and you've done this for over a decade. So you actually coach the client and her husband, whoever the addict is, to regulate, regulate the um, trigger by doing lots of different things. And I wondered if you'd be willing to share in actuality what a trigger buster is. Okay. So in reality, as soon as one person gets triggered, the other partner gets triggered. So basically you've got two triggered people trying to restore some safety. And I typically work with the addict. I I say, you know, you broke it. The onus is on you to fix it. And I'm here to help you, to show you how to do that. So the first thing the addict wants to do is to find out, okay, be sure, are you triggered? Is that what's happening right here, right now? And we start with the what not to do. And the what not to do is don't blame, shame, defend, minimize, invalidate, judge, criticize, debate, stonewall, and especially don't correct with irrelevant details or withdraw or escape or project anger. Because you know, any I one so, of the – go ahead. I'm so glad you said that because unless an addict knows not to do that, there is such a natural tendency for him to go into that shame cycle or at least that blame cycle and go, well, you know, I'm, I'm really working on that. And haven't you noticed that it's much better now? And, and he's not staying in tune – with the partner's trigger. He's more concerned about the fact that he's thinking that she's saying that he is triggering her right then and there. Right. And we know that with a trigger, the brain can't differentiate past from present. And so we're feeling cumulatively every 
trigger every body sensation that we're feeling in that moment. In the body, we're feeling it cumulatively going way back to infancy and childhood and throughout the lifespan, that same body sensation, which is what makes a trigger so powerful, so painful, and really scary for the addict who has to then reach into that trauma vortex and literally, like Alice in Wonderland, who's free-falling down that rabbit hole, put her hand in and pull her out, rescue her. Well, and I think you're a master at making the addict feel safe as he's recognizing that her triggers are a result of all of his actions. I mean, you really know how to make an addict feel safe, which we, you and I believe through APSATS, is part of what will also heal the coupleship. Because when he feels safe and he thinks he can help, his self-esteem improves which then he can give more to the partner. What do you exactly. think? Exactly. Well, could not have said it better myself. In fact, one of the things that there, – there are two things that I also say as a groundwork to beginning to understand how best to utilize trigger busters. And the first thing is, you know – Sex addiction and narcissism go hand in hand. And that the antidote to narcissism, which is an inflated ego, is esteemable acts, self-esteem. And I explained to the addict, if you think about sex addiction as that earthquake that ruptured the relationship, Every time you pull your wife out of that trauma vortex and help her brain come back online and reconnect with her, you cement a crack in the foundation of your relationship. And if you keep doing this over and over and over again, you will have such a strong foundation that it's going to take a 9.0 earthquake or a major relapse to rupture that, you know, rupture that relationship. And the addict sees that, oh, wow, I have the power to help her heal. Mm-hmm. Does that and make that, sense? And that, again, is that a, that's that esteem thing you were talking about that helps to deflate the need to be narcissistic, but inflate that feel good about helping his wife to heal. And it's real. It's not, it's because the other part of recovery is connecting to the real self. Because mm-hmm. that's the real self, the core is strong, competent, capable, loving, compassionate. 
the false self is, you know, that's, that's the addict part. Lies, cheats, deceives. And so with esteemable acts such as trigger busters, we're empowering the addict to help his wife heal. And it's done through connection and developing empathy, which then uh-huh. leads to intimacy. And okay. isn't like so, so next. Yeah, so what I want to ask you, because you started to say the very first part of a trigger buster is when you ask, when he checks in with his wife and, and asks her how she's doing, what is she feeling, right? Right. And so, so we went through the do not. Right. And the next thing you want to do is validate, validate, validate. It makes sense to me that you're triggered. Now, Mm. this is the tricky part for everybody. Because everybody says, well, what if it doesn't make sense? What if I don't get it? That's not what's important right now. What's Mm -hmm. important is that you see, uh uh-oh, she's triggered. She's in a burning building. The building's on fire. She's in the fire. Do you want to sit there and try to figure out what caused the fire? Is the fire real? Or do you just want to run in there and grab her and get her out? And so validating it makes sense to me that you feel triggered scared angry unsafe you've got plenty of time later on to download and find out what was happening but in this moment all you want to do is validate because the moment you validate and she hears the word it makes sense to me her brain Uh is going to begin to come back online Okay. And so then if if a trigger can't differentiate, if the brain can't differentiate between past and present, then we want to orient to the here and now, and that's step two. The addict wants to gently remind the partner that nothing bad is happening right now that she's safe, I'm keeping you safe, I am right here with you. This looks like a bad trigger, but I'm not acting out now. I'm right here with you, and I have your back. And with that, we negotiate in session. What somatic resource, what bodily connection can be made at this point that would feel safe in order to reconnect. And I instruct the addict that if she's triggered because of a real slip or relapse, you do Uh not do this. Then trigger busters absolutely do not do this because that's gaslighting. This is only if it's a trigger. And that in the moment, 
nothing bad is happening. It feels okay, awful. I, audience is new to some of the jargon, and you said if he is not in good recovery, then he shouldn't be helping her manage her triggers because he is still causing triggers, whether she even knows it or not, because he's he's participating in behavior that that are sexually addictive in nature. Now you reference gaslighting. You said, you know, because he's gaslighting. So tell our listening audience what is your definition of gaslighting? Altering a person's reality. So, for example, if the partner is triggered because she's discovered porn on his computer, that's a slip or relapse. She absol- she's not just triggered, she's traumatized because she just had a discovery. And if the partner has a discovery... You, you don't say you're safe, I'm right here with you, I have your back. You don't. You've just slipped. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you, you, you can't do trigger busters. You're only going to exacerbate the situation and re-traumatize her. Does that yeah, make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yes, 100%. And so, again, gaslighting is creating an altered state of reality, and, and it's not true, it's not authentic, it's not real. And, boy, that's what a lot of my partners, that's when they say, I felt so crazy. It was like he was saying one thing, and I was feeling another, and yet he was not in any way confirming my reality. He was only confirming his own. Right. Exactly, exactly. And so, and it's done to protect himself. And when he does that, again, he is re-traumatizing her. And it's a form of, of emotional and psychological abuse because it's crazy-making. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So okay, when I so work now, with couples, uh-huh. he's, he's gotta, he has to really get that trigger busters is about restoring emotional safety and connection. And that's how he rebuilds trust. That's how he um, strengthens the foundation of the relationship. And this is doable. This is, you know, once, once they put this into action, they're like, oh, wow, this actually works. I can do this. Got it. And, okay. Yeah. And so I'm right here with you. I have your back. And we negotiate in session. So what would feel comfortable? Can he put his hand on your back and just go up and down your back so that it's symbolic of he's got your back? Or do you need him to maybe put both his hands on your shoulders or maybe on top of your head or behind your neck, uh, 
head or neck and, and squeeze. It's all about bringing your brain back online. And when your brain is offline, you're often flooded and you can't really hear the words or process, which is why it's so important to use the body as a way of bringing the brain back online and using touch. And it's got to be done ahead of time so that um, everybody knows what that symbol is and it doesn't feel threatening. And then the last step is to de-escalate, which means that um, as the partner's hijacked brain comes back online, the recovering addict really attunes to the partner and says, wow, that was a really bad trigger, but you're safe right here, right now. I've got your back. I'm not doing anything to put you at risk. And again, we negotiate. Is it okay for him to reach for you? Like reach his hand out, hold hands, maybe a hug. No words. At this point, there are no words. It's literally looking feeling her body relax as she recovers from the trigger. And then it's just holding, just holding until she's able to talk again. And the couple can socially reengage, which means that slowly, slowly, she's able to say what just happened. You were late, and I thought maybe you went to a bar, a strip club, whatever the trigger was. And the couple then uses the Imago Dialogue to begin to process, to talk about the addict mirrors back what she says so that he can really get it, develop empathy for just how awful this is. And as he begins to feel grateful that he can help her heal, that he could pull her out of the trigger, they're both feeling grateful. That's intimacy. That's both empathy and intimacy. And that's the goal. That's that's the whole thing. Well, yeah, and I, I was telling our listening audience before you got on the call that, you know, partner-sensitive training has uh, is based on some real strong values we have, and one of them is that if an addict is in good recovery and if the addict has, you know, followed through with the procedures that we think are so important 
in establishing truth like a disclosure followed by a polygraph. You know, if those things are occurring, then he really is in a good place to begin to help her heal. And it really does build his self-esteem. And it really does promote the coupleship. And, and that's an abstract value, but it's also what I see in the work with my clients because partners really do want to feel safe enough to evaluate the situation and stay together if, if they can reconcile in safety. But if things are absolutely, safe, yeah. Um, and you've been doing this for over 10 years. I have. And, you know, it's, I, one of the challenges that I have is mm-hmm. that working with an individual, whether it's a partner or an addict, mm-hmm. is very different than when you're working with the couple. Because when you work with the individual, your role, even though when we're absatch trained, we are partner sensitive, we are couple sensitive, and that client, we're there for, for that client. And one of the things that I've learned is that if a partner is in relationship, trying to repair the relationship, working with a couple's therapist, that everything we do, or at least everything I do, is reframed from the coupleship perspective. And so, for example, oftentimes when I receive a boundary list, and as a couples therapist, I'm asked to review the partner's boundaries with the couple. I read the boundaries, and it's very much written from the perspective of protecting the partner. Does that make sense, Carol? Absolutely, from protecting the partner. That is our number one goal. Right. And when I read those boundaries, And I usually do um, a session with the partner. I go over that, that list with her, and then I say, so let me ask you something. Would it be okay if we just looked at the boundary and see if we could tweak it so that it's more relational? And, you know, we know that typically the boundary is if you or when you, I will. And so let's say, for example, if you communicate with a previous sex partner, I will ask you to move out or to leave the house. And then I add, until I feel confident that you understand the impact it had on me and that you show me that you are committed to protect me and my safety. 
Now, that boundary becomes a relational boundary because it's not only meant to protect her. It's meant to protect him and to show him the way of how to restore, how to rebuild trust and safety. And so the challenge working with couples is how do we write from the get-go in everything that we do keep at the forefront of our brains that we're looking to restore trust and safety to stabilize the couple so that we could reduce the trauma, reduce the triggers, and keep people healthy and having um, rebuilding a healthy relationship. I know that was another mouthful, but it's just something that's really preoccupying me as I do more and more work with couples, the need to make it a we process, no matter, you know, what it is that we're dealing with. Well, if I may... Yeah, it makes really good sense. If I may, Dor, you know, that can get really confusing. And so I was talking earlier before you got on the call about, oh, the very old traditional model of sexual addiction and and support groups, um, SAA, SA, SNON, COSA. And, and it used to be that they did not see the importance of that last piece you were talking about which is when the partner determines what it is that she needs to feel safe, she, in a very calm, gentle way, needs to assert herself and let her know what she needs so that, A, she's spoken her boundaries, and, B, she's helped to make that clear for him, and then, C, on some level, she's giving him another layer of accountability because she's saying, this is what I need from you. And sometimes in support groups and in old traditional models with therapists that don't know what they're doing, they'll say, you can't tell him what to do. You're just going to have to take care of yourself. And assets believe, no, you need to share what your needs are, even if they directly affect him and his recovery. And it's, it's good to be clear and direct about what you need, feel, and want. Would you agree? Absolutely. And the more clear and direct we are, the more everyone understands what it takes to heal. And I think that I've never met a partner who wants to be mommy in the relationship and tell the addict what you need to do and here's the punishment or the consequences if you don't. I think every partner wants her husband to be an equal partner and that 
it's why it's so important, like even in, the, in, in creating the boundary, that it be relational, that here's what I need. I need to know that you're not going to betray me, that if you talk to a, part, to a, a previous sex partner or you go to a massage therapist, here's what I'm going to do in order to keep myself safe. And when you understand the impact it has on me, like, because that's what we're talking about with trauma, it's that impact. And that's never been part of the traditional 12-step model, the impact that your behavior had on me. Because staying on your own side of the street, not being able to say, when you do this, this is what it does to me. And when you get it, and I'm confident that you get it and you're, not, and, and you're committed to not doing that again, I could come back and be in relationship with you. And that's the missing piece. It's that, no. I need you to cross over to my side of the street. I need you to understand the impact it has on me. And I need you to make a commitment to me that you get it and that you're not going to hurt me because if you do, I'm going to have to protect myself. And here's how I'm going to do it. You're you're exactly right. And, you know, you also have come up with other additional tools to help couples and to help the sex addicts and, and partners. And I know that you offer workshops that really allow couples to spend an extra amount of time working on their tools. Do you have anything coming up for addicts, partners, or couples? Yeah, I do. So I've been working with an amazing couples therapist who has been doing this work for just couples work for 30 years. Her name's Mary Kay Cacharo. We're in L.A. And Mary Kay didn't have a background in sex addiction. Yes, anyone who does couples work does betrayal, you know, it works with betrayal trauma. But she does encounter-centered couples therapy, which is an even deeper form of couples therapy than imago or emotionally focused couples therapy. And we've started offering these um, workshops. We started offering them quarterly, and we just had one in August. And we're going to, we haven't set the date yet. It's either going to be in um, November or December. But beginning in January, we're going to be doing them monthly because they have been so successful. Couples struggling with sex addiction have said that this is the most transformative form of couples therapy that they've experienced. And so... They're um, six days long, five nights, six days. 
We do them at my retreat center in Montecito, California, which is right outside of Santa Barbara. And it's a combination of understanding sex addiction from a relational trauma perspective where you get all the tools such as trigger busters and um, how to do how to create healthy boundaries, relational boundaries, a relationship vision, and then how to communicate in a way that really promotes sexual and relational intimacy and healing. So how can couples find out about your workshops? So... They can go to my website and they can contact me. And um, we'll screen, you know, we do have to screen the couples because it's very important that the couple be post-disclosure. It's really not helpful to create this level of intimacy until the couple is at least three to six months. And so we do have a screening process, and um, we, are, we offer other workshops as well. We offer partners intensives. I offer partners intensives, and I work with APSAT-trained therapists and coaches all over the country who come to my retreat center, and we do um, intensives. Uh, and also, I'm going to be starting um, intensives and workshops for divorcing partners. Mm. And I also do, um, I will say, I do private intensives for couples who come to me because they want a collaborative divorce. And so far, I've had two or three couples, and two out of the three, after one or two sessions, asked if, would it be okay if we tried to do couple therapy to work on our relationship, to, to maybe not get divorced? And it's been an amazing process to watch, to see these couples who were at divorce's doorsteps come back together again. Oh yeah, I I bet it is. I you know I can't imagine the safety that that has to bring to both people. So tell them again what your website is so that they can contact you and start the screening process. It's Dorit Reichenthal, D O R I T R E I C H E N T A L dot com. Okay. And, Carol, I need to apologize. You sounded like Barb, and I didn't know if there was an emergency. But when I got on the call, I must have totally confused you because you sounded like Barb Steffens. I, I knew that, that that was what you thought. At first I thought you were talking to me, and then I realized she thinks I'm somebody else because she said I thought Carol was going to be on the call. And so I, I 
figured I must sound like Barb. You know, we're training together, and you know what they say about trainers. You start working together for a while, and you sound exactly alike. So no apologies necessary, and I will pass those kind words on to Barbara. Because she, you know, she is our hero, and she just got honored. She's the president of org, the only um, organization that does specifically partner-sensitive curriculum for coaches and clinicians, and she just got the Patrick Carnes Award for the good work she's been doing for nearly a decade. So we both really admire her, don't we, Doris? We we sure do. She she paved the way for all of us. And, you know, as you said, we're, we're all making contributions in our own way. And you know, being part of APSATS has been really one of the highlights of my professional career because everybody at APSATS, they're just amazing people. And we're all interested really in helping one another heal. Helping one another heal and also helping share the tools that have gotten either partners through, oneself through the crisis, because a lot of our partner-sensitive therapists and coaches have been through this. So they know firsthand how it feels to be, have experienced sexual betrayal. So, Dort, thank you so much for sharing this Trigger Busters formula, and I hope that people will listen to the show. I encourage the women to have their husbands listen to the show together so that they can write down these statements, practice them, give them to their therapist. Hopefully they're APSATS trained, but if not, this is a tool that we can share with other therapists and coaches so that they'll have more tools in their toolbox. And I wish everybody listening um, a healing recovery because everybody oh. deserves to be at peace relationally and in their body. Amen. Thank you so much, Stuart. And listen, you have a great week. Thank you, Carolyn. It's so good to talk to you again. You too. Bye. Keep in touch. Bye-bye. I will. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So, again, that was Dort Reichenthal. And I don't know if you caught that at the beginning of the show. She did think I was Barbara. And Barbara was my very first interview when we started this radio show back in June. I thought it was very appropriate for the president of APSATS and the author of My Sexually Addicted Spouse be on and share her wisdom with with us. Now, you know that you you can download these shows through iTunes or Stitcher and listen to them. Put them on your M, you know, MP3 player. Put them on your computer. Keep us close. We are want to be here for you. So as I say at the end of every show, you know, there will only be one of you at all times. Fearlessly have the courage to be yourself and take Dora's words to meaning when she says, you have the right to feel that serenity and that calm that everybody deserves to have. Make it a great week, and I will talk to you later with more Betrayal Recovery Radio.